Thank you very much, Nathan. How are y'all doing? Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Go ahead and open up. Turn there. Um, you know, as a young person, you got to remember, as you study the Bible, you're learning a lot, right? Like, you shouldn't expect, as a young person, to have all the technical knowledge and all the Bible knowledge that you're going to have when you're 30 or 40, right? The thing is, you're starting now, and you're picking these things up, and you're learning things as you go, and you're going to come across stuff that it's a little bit difficult to make sense of, but that's okay. Keep learning. Keep growing. Those pieces really start to fit together. You have the benefit of living in 2022 where you have access to, like, almost infinite resources, good resources for studying the Bible. Ask your parents, ask your youth leaders to help you get some of those or know where to look. But whatever it is, keep studying, keep growing. When you come across stuff that's confusing, that maybe doesn't initially make sense, be okay with that. Kind of hold on to it in the back of your mind. And at some point, those pieces start to come together. But one tip, one really important critical aspect to studying the Bible is you read stories and you're like, okay, that was interesting. I kind of get the point. But the key is, what is the timeless principle that God is teaching me through this story that he wants me to apply to my life? That's what you're trying to walk away from every Bible study with is, okay, what is the eternal truth that through this story, I'm being taught. Sometimes it's really easy. Like when you go read Paul and he says, don't lie, but speak the truth. It's like, all right, I think the timeless lesson he's got for me today is not to lie, it's in to speak the truth, right? Sometimes, and I think you can probably quickly think of other passages, you're like, okay, I'm not exactly sure what the timeless truth is. But that's what you're going for. And so tonight, as we read this passage, I think you'll see some obvious things that Jesus is showing us in this story that we read. But the most critical piece for you is what is the timeless truth that I'm supposed to grab here and apply to my life tonight, tomorrow, the rest of my life? What is the timeless truth? When God records something for us, as he's done in Matthew and all of the Bible, he's doing that so that, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says, we can be equipped for the godly lives that God has called us to. He's recorded these things for an extremely important purpose, for living the life that, in fellowship with him, that glorifies him, that he's called us to live. So, as we read tonight, that's really what we're looking to draw away from these lessons or these stories that we read. But that's what we're looking to draw away from the Bible anytime we open up the Bible. So Matthew chapter 16. We're still up in the region of Galilee. What all has Jesus been doing? Galilee, the northern part of Israel. We got some new folks here from Israel. That's pretty interesting. Did you ever go to Galilee area? pretty awesome. Did you ever go in the Sea of Galilee? That's phenomenal. All right. That's cool. 
So the northern part of Israel, right? Did y'all live in Jerusalem? Okay, so that's like, yeah, that's okay. So never mind. But Jerusalem, this is like northern part of Israel that Jesus is still in. And what all has he been doing in this area? We've followed him for many chapters. Lots of miracles. Lots of miracles, right? Like the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, those are the big ones that really, we, they stick in our memory, right? That's a pretty big deal. But like you said, many miracles. You read through chapters 14, 15, he's got people coming from all over uh, to be healed by him. Many, many miracles. What else has he been doing, Fox? I'm going to put that under a different bucket. Yes, you're right. I would put that under the bucket of he's been having some stiff interactions with the political, society, religious leaders of the time. Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes. I'm looking for one more thing. Y'all got two out of three right off the bat. Sure, miracles, healing people there for sure. Teaching, right? Yeah. Showing them the te- different, you say, showing the difference between uh, tradition and the commandments of God. Essentially teaching. Teaching people the kingdom of God, the way of the kingdom of God, the gospel, and then also those who are already believers, already followers, teaching them what they need to know to continue to grow as followers of His. And the brilliant thing about Jesus is all these things really kind of intermingle, right? Like you think about the conflict that he's been having, the confrontation with the political leaders, society leaders, religious leaders. Not only does he have conflict with those people, but just like you said right now, he takes those moments of conflict and turns them into teaching moments for everybody. Or you, somebody brought up the Canaanite woman, right? Like, I think it was you brought up the Canaanite woman. So the miracles, but yet, was it simply a miracle that was done through for the Canaanite woman? It was a teaching moment for all of us, for everybody. So these things, the, the miracles, the teaching, the confrontation with the leaders of the time, all these things Jesus brilliantly weaves together to interact with one another and work with one another. The ultimate result, we see it in verse 31, the ultimate result in 31 of chapter 15, they were glorifying the God of Israel. Jesus always has, today he does, and he always will bring glory to the Father. As people come to recognize that who Jesus truly is, the Messiah, the Son of God, and as people commit their lives to Jesus as the Son of God and the Messiah, as they believe the gospel and they come to him in salvation, it brings glory to the Father. We see that in verse 31. As we move from chapter 15 into chapter 16, we still find ourselves along the coast of the Sea of Galilee, the place that tells us at the end of chapter 15 that they went by boat was Magadon. So that's kind of like on the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. And that's where chapter 16 is largely going to take place. And until after the resurrection, this is kind of the last major scene 
that we find in the life of Jesus um, before the crucifixion. So after this, he's going to go a little bit further north, then back down south to Jerusalem. So tonight, I think we really got two lessons wrapped into one. They really relate. They're related incidents, and they go together. But there's two different lessons that I want us to take away from this because there's two different audiences that Jesus is really going to address. In verses 1 through 4, he's going to address the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the message he's going to have for them is that they fail to know about what truly matters. They fail to know about what truly matters. But this incident with the Pharisees and the Sadducees is going to lead to a second interaction, sort of a second lesson for us tonight in verses 5 to 12, where Jesus is having an interaction with his disciples. And the lesson, I don't have it written down, the lesson for them, a failure to worry about what matters most. A failure to worry about what matters most. We're going to be able to see, I think, very obvious, eternal truth, timeless connection between what Jesus is telling these people, these two groups of people, and exactly what he would tell us as well. So we'll start looking at part one, verses one through four. But let's talk before we read these verses about the two groups that approach Jesus. This is not really anything new. People are approaching Jesus to challenge him, to test him. But we do have a really unique pairing tonight. The Pharisees, who we're already pretty familiar with, right? The Pharisees were um, those who were very obsessed with keeping the law, justification by the law, um, seeking to be justified by the law. In fact, they were so obsessed with it that you brought up the hand-washing thing that they had the confrontation with Jesus on earlier. So, like, the hand-washing thing was only for the priests when they were going in to offer sacrifices in the temple. But to be really careful, they said, hey, everybody, just wash your hands before you eat. So, like, if they thought the Bible said, don't touch that vent, if the Bible said, don't touch that vent right there, the Pharisees would say, Let's just actually say it's a sin to go within 10 feet just to be real safe. Because, hey, if you're looking to be justified by the law, you better be pretty careful, right? Like, you better set up some really big-time hedges. But the problem is you can't be justified by the law. It doesn't matter what kind of crazy stipulations or efforts you go through. The reality is you can't be perfect. You can't live the righteous life perfectly that God created you to live. You're going to go crazy trying. People go crazy trying. But ultimately, you're going to end up in the same place. You need the righteousness of Christ. You need your inevitable sinfulness forgiven. So that's the Pharisees. The Sadducees, we haven't talked as much about them. The Sadducees come up in this passage. And there's some unique things about them. They were the kind of the aristocratic, the elite of society, the wealthy people, the fancy people. Um, they had some very unique beliefs. So they believed the Old Testament. 
but they thought all this tradition stuff that the Pharisees had was just junk. They're like, wait, that's just traditions y'all came up with. They denied the resurrection, so they didn't believe there was a resurrection. But a big piece of why they denied the resurrection is because they denied much of the spiritual realm. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe in the individual human soul. They believed that God alone was the one spiritual entity. And so after you die, you die. There's no resurrection. That's it. Um, And so this is a really odd pairing. Because when it came down to belief, the Pharisees, they believed in the resurrection. They believed in angels and demons and, and the human soul. The Pharisees believed in like all these traditions that they had built up around the Old Testament. The Sadducees rejected all of that. So it's really odd to see these two groups team up to oppose Jesus. It, it's people who normally would have nothing else to do with each other. In fact... If you want to read, I don't know if it's funny. I kind of think it's funny. Acts 23, Paul's on trial. And as he's standing there in trial, he's like, you know, there's a lot of Pharisees over here and a lot of Sadducees over there. I'm just going to get them fighting. And so he just throws out the resurrection, that he's on trial for the resurrection. And immediately they start going at each other. And Paul's like, all right, then the distraction's there. And I'm... They, they forget about Paul for a moment because they're so busy fighting with one another. Um, so that's the group that approaches Jesus here. And let's read with that background the interaction that Christ has with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Again, the point he's going to make is they fail to know about what matters most. Verse 1 of chapter 16. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came up and testing Jesus they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, When it is evening, you say, it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it, except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. They come here in verse 1 to test him. This isn't sincere seeking after truth. This isn't them really wanting to know who Jesus is with a sincere desire to draw closer to him. They come with facetious malintent, the wrong intentions. They come to test him, and they say, show us a sign from heaven. Well, by the time you've gotten to Matthew 16, you've got to be thinking, what more could these people possibly want? How many signs from heaven could you possibly need? In fact, they are there because Jesus has already provided so many signs from heaven that all of Israel, all of Jerusalem is going to stir all the people are coming from all over with every kind of sickness and disease and demon possession. There's been plenty of signs from heaven at this point. At this point, it is not about truth. It is not about validating the ministry of Christ. At this point, it is about hard-hearted rebellion. 
At this point, it is about being slaves to their sinfulness and not wanting to give that up. Think about this. Think about this from what you know about how a person comes to Christ. Will any amount of proof, evidence, ever bring somebody to salvation? That's not how the Bible says salvation works. Certainly the miracles and the proofs are there to validate the testimony, the ministry of the prophets of Christ and the apostles. But the Bible is very clear to us that salvation comes by faith. And that faith is by the grace of God, a gift of the grace of God. God is the one who has to take a heart that is a slave to sin, spiritually dead, and infuse spiritual life. That's why we call it regeneration. You'll hear people talk about regeneration, and that's because the dead soul is regenerated, brought to life by the Holy Spirit infusing faith. You should think about that when it comes to evangelism. Do all those apologetic arguments help? Yeah, you know, they are good things that can help um, bolster faith. They are good things that can help answer questions and, and um, help people that just have certain questions and doubts to see things more clearly. But ultimately, saving faith is going to come from the Holy Spirit working through your faithful proclamation of the gospel. You faithfully telling people who Jesus Christ is, faithfully telling them in a loving way that because of their sinfulness, they need a Savior and that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to save them. That's what the Holy Spirit works through to bring salvation. And Jesus knows that the hearts of these men, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, is not genuine. It's not genuine seeking after truth, but it is hard-hearted rebellion, and they, Jesus is not going to play the game with them. Instead, Jesus rebukes them. He rebukes them that for as much as they know, as much as they know, they don't know what matters. Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, when, it, you, when it's easy, you say it'll be... Sorry, I, I was debating whether or not to read it. I'm way behind our time already, so I just got to slide through. When it is evening, you say it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the time? These guys, they're weather forecasters. Jesus is mocking the fact that, like, hey, you know, you have all this knowledge built up, all this advancement built up. You know how to look at the weather and know, like, to look at the sky and say, okay, this is the type of weather that we're going to have today. They have developed all their sciences, but they aren't able to see the undeniable power of God and who Jesus Christ is right in front of them. As much as they know, were, were the Sadducees and the Pharisees dumb, unintelligent people? Absolutely not. No. I mean, these people, the, the religious leaders, 
the aristocrats, the, the leaders of Jewish society probably had a lot of really intelligent people. A lot of really, people that the world would say is very successful. The Pharisees, I wish I had the intellectual knowledge of the Old Testament that the Pharisees did. They were not dumb, but they didn't understand what truly mattered. Do you see how that can relate to our lives today? Are there a lot of smart people in this world who don't know anything about Jesus Christ? I don't know anything about Elon Musk, but he's a smart dude. I can tell that, right? Like, if I wanted the internet, I probably wouldn't be able to shoot some satellites up and just say, I just give myself internet, right? Like, I mean, that's impressive stuff. There's some smart people in this world. But in the scope of eternity, if you don't know Jesus Christ, how much does that matter? The answer is not at all. Not at all. Are there people who accomplish a lot in this world, either through academics, you know? They go to Harvard. They go to Cornell. They're amazing athletes, Division I scholarships. They, they're very successful in life. The world would call them a success. But if you don't know Jesus Christ, what does that matter? Think about Jesus' illustration of the house built on the sand. It doesn't matter how fantastic that house built on the sand is. When judgment comes, it's just going to crash. And frankly, the bigger the house, the more spectacular the crash, right? Like, do you see how this can relate to us even now in our life today? All of us have the opportunity to be excellent students, to be excellent athletes, excellent musicians, musicians. I know a lot of you, and a lot of you are very smart and have the ability to be very successful in this world. And that's awesome stuff. Like, go read the Proverbs. The Proverbs tell you, and a lot of places in the Bible tell you, you should absolutely work hard, be diligent, focus on the tasks that God's given you to do, do them with excellence, do them for the purpose of glorifying Him, do things, do things well, and take the success that God gives you in life, but never lose sight of if your spiritual health is bad, or if you don't know Christ, it is all completely meaningless and couldn't be less meaningless. That's the point that Jesus is making here. You Pharisees and Sadducees are really great at a lot of things. You know a lot. You're smart. You think you got things figured out. You can read the weather, but don't, he says at the end of verse 3, you cannot discern the time of the coming. You can't tell that the biggest event in all of history is happening right in front of your eyes right now. The Messiah is walking the earth, about to give his life to reconcile sinful humanity to God, and you are completely 
that make sense? Do you see the relevant points there for your life? Examine yourself. Do you know about what matters? Are you really good at something else? It's good to be good at stuff. But if you don't know about what really matters, if you don't know Christ, you are utterly wasting eternity. Utterly wasting your life. And it doesn't matter what you have on this earth. In the scope of eternity, Elon Musk even absolutely meaningless. So Jesus gives him a recap here in verse 4. He knows their sinful hearts. Jesus, does Jesus rebuke true seekers of him? Think about all the times people have come and said something incorrect to Jesus or gotten things a little bit wrong, and Jesus compassionately corrects them. Jesus doesn't have any problem with true seekers, but he knows their hearts. They're not true seekers. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. They didn't need another sign. They had all the signs they could possibly want. And so he says, the only sign in verse 4 that will be given it, there will be no sign given it except the sign of Jonah. Now that's actually the second time we've seen that. And I did not plan my time well, so I'm going to read it quickly. Because we saw this already in chapter 12. Kind of a very similar situation. People looking for a sign and Jesus says, no sign will be given you except for the sign of Jonah. I'm just going to read it real quick. But he answered and said to them, Matthew 12, 39 to 41, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, but yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh, will stand up with this generation in judgment and will condemn it because they repent, repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Basically, Jesus is saying, look, the sign you're going to get is you're going to kill me, and in three days, I'm going to raise from the dead. I'm giving you the sign of like Jonah, but yet somebody greater than Jonah is here. And if there was condemnation, to people who are, if people responded to Jonah, the sinful people of Nineveh responded to Jonah, how much more condemnation will there be for you who had somebody far greater than Jonah yet did not respond? Part two. Now we're moving on to disciples. And here, they demonstrate for us a failure to worry about what matters most, or to know about what matters most. Let's say that. A failure to know about what matters most. You can go ahead, Alex. Let's read verses 5 to 12. And the disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They began to discuss this among themselves, saying, He said that because we did not bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, 
why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets full you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not say to beware the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So it's, a, it's an interesting story. In verse 5, we um, see that uh, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And remember, there's no, like, grocery stores, right? Like, it's not like if we forget something, go into Camp Copus, run to Walmart, pick something up. Like, these people, they're in a remote spot. So uh, they forget to bring what they feel like is enough provisions, enough food for this trip they're on. So they're discussing it, and Jesus makes a really cryptic statement in verse 6. Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So they're sitting around, and they hear Jesus say that, and they're like, what is he talking about? What does this mean? What's, what's the point that Jesus is making. I mean, leaven is about bread, right? Like, that's what leaven gets involved with. Leaven is like a yeast. I don't know anything about cooking, but supposedly you put some amount of it in the dough and it causes it to come up, right? I don't know. But that's what I'm told. So leaven, there's like some kind of leaven and bread connection there, but it's still kind of a odd thing for Jesus to say. I mean, I don't think the Pharisees or the Sadducees had any kind of like unique leaven, if you're thinking about it from a bread and baking standpoint. But Jesus says, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So they're trying to figure out, and they're like, oh man, you know, I think Jesus is just really mad that we didn't plan out this trip very well. Jesus is kind of just put off that we didn't bring enough bread. In verse 7, he's like, uh, they land on that Jesus must have said this, because we didn't bring any bread. And Jesus is like, knucklehead. That's not what this is about. Okay? Y'all are it's not about the fact that you forgot to bring enough bread. In verse 8, Jesus said, is aware of this. And he says, you men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? And then he gives them the explanation in verses 8 to 11. He says, do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the or yeah, the five loaves of the five thousand and how many baskets full you picked up, or the seven loaves of the four thousand and how many baskets full you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So there could be two levels that Jesus is talking about. You know, I think maybe on one level it's like and I don't think this is the most important level at all, but it is a level. I, Jesus is saying, hey, y'all are worried about bread. As you've seen, I've got no problem making bread. I've got whatever needs we've got, whatever needs you may have, physical needs, as Jesus, he's not real worried about his ability or God's ability to meet those needs. He's a miracle worker, right? 
But while that is, I think, part of the point, I think the deeper and the bigger point here is that their hearts and their minds are too preoccupied, worried about, anxious about worldly material things. They're too anxious, preoccupied, and worried about worldly material things. As followers of Christ, what their preoccupation should be is running as fast as they can from Jesus. As being in the moment with Jesus. Being disciples of Christ. That their worry, their preoccupation shouldn't be on physical needs. And it's the same for us. Our worries, our preoccupation, what we dwell on day in and day out, shouldn't be on physical needs, but on being disciples, followers, obedient to Jesus Christ. Think about what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6. Look at verses, I'll read for you, verses 25 and 26, going back to um, the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. In the heading, which isn't, it's not in the Bible, it's just the heading that the printer of my Bible put there, but it's helpful. The cure for worry is the heading in my Bible. It says, Jesus says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather in the barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Do you see what Jesus is saying there? As his followers, the preoccupation of your life, the worry of your mind, should not be on the material things of this life. Contrast that with how the world lives. What is the number one preoccupation of the world? The acquisition of material things, right? It's like from kindergarten through middle school and high school through college and even after. It's how much can you acquire? How much money can you make? If you have a career, how far promoted into your career can you get? And people slave for it, right? Like people work and work and work and they 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 work forty to I mean not forty they work like you have you don't have work for you. You work like eighty hours a week. I mean people just pour every ounce of their life into it. Now, is there anything wrong with hard work? No, that's very biblical actually, right? You should be working your absolute hardest. And giving your absolute best, dedicated to whatever God has given you to do in your life, to do it to the best of your ability, as faithfully as possible, and be as good at it as you possibly can be. That's biblical wisdom, biblical stewardship of your life. Consequently, it tends to lead, oftentimes, to career success. But, as the follower of Christ, that is never to be your obsession your, your primary goal, the, the preoccupation and worry of your life. Um, you look at, Jesus continues on in chapter 6, and he says, Do not worry, then, saying, What will we eat, 
or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. We should take that to our passage and say, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are the ones who are really preoccupied with this stuff. Y'all shouldn't be, okay? In the Sermon on the Mount, he says the Gentiles. But for the Gentiles, non-believers, those who are outside of Christ, eagerly seek all these things. But your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. So seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. There's nothing inherently wrong with all these things. These things will be added to you. It is good to have food and clothing, but it's not what you seek first. You seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's your obsession. That's the preoccupation of your mind. Think about how the Israelites reacted. Go like we're not going to flip there, but Exodus chapter 15. You know, they were in a pretty bad situation that they complained about for a long time in Egypt, slavery, and they were abused in slavery. And so God finally brings them out of that in his perfect timing, his plan. He brings them out of that. You think they'd be in a pretty good mood, right? But they get to the middle of the desert, Exodus fifteen twenty four, and they start complaining to Moses, essentially complaining about God, saying, what are we going to eat and drink? They lost sight of why God had truly brought them out of sla- or brought them out of slavery to be His people, to be followers of His, followers of His, and they became preoccupied with the things of this world. You contrast it with Jesus, right? Matthew chapter four, verses one to four. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after he had fasted forty days and forty nights. He became hungry. Yeah, Jesus is fully human. Fully God, fully human. He became hungry. And I would imagine very extreme hunger. And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Is there anything sinful about Jesus eating when he's hungry? Absolutely not. But Jesus... His focus was on doing the will of God. He wasn't, even these okay things, he wasn't going to go about them his own way. But so Jesus answers and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's the bigger point that Jesus is making to the disciples here in Matthew chapter 16. They're sitting here arguing, debating with each other, probably mad at each other and fighting over the things of this world. The disciples, are they supposed to be fighting and against each other? No. They're fighting, though, going at each other, concerned about the things of this world. And so Jesus tells them again, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and it quits that. This time they understand. So leaven, leaven can be used, we've seen it used a few different ways. When you look at the parables, it was used as an illustration of how the gospel spreads, right? The way leaven spreads through the dough, the way the gospel spreads through the earth, the kingdom of God spreads. But very, very often, not always, but most often, even more often, I should say, it represents sin and evil. 
That's why um, communion, unleavened bread. That's why you go to the Old Testament, they ate unleavened bread. Leaven representing sinfulness. And so Jesus tells them, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then in verse 12, they understood that he did not say beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were still slaves to the concerns of this world. The things of this world, their own sinfulness, their sinful appetites. And the disciples, as followers of Christ, should not live that way. Do you see how that same principle would apply to us tonight? Absolutely. Think about both of these as we wrap up. First of all, do you know the Lord? Do you know about what truly matters? Like, like I said, there's a lot of opportunities for a lot of you to be successful in this world in so many different ways. But do you know the one thing that matters? Jesus Christ. In the scope of eternity, it is the only thing that matters. And second, in my second part of the lesson here, What is the preoccupation of your heart? We all have things that worry us, that concern us. But how often as you examine your life, how often are those things that consume your mind the things of God? Go read through the Psalms and look at how often it talks to God. The meditation of the godly heart being the things of God. Examine your own life up against that. Is the things of God, are the things of God the constant meditation and preoccupation of your life? Or is it so many other worldly things that in light of eternity are foolish? You know, here it's the bread. For us, it could be sports, academics, work, friendships relationships, okay? There's so many different things. None of those things sinful and bad in and of themselves. But are you seeking those things first or the kingdom of God? Jesus would tell you the same way that he tells the disciple, would tell the disciples here, look, be preoccupied with me and let the Father take care of all these other things. Lord, we do thank you so much for your love for us, that you give us these truths, that your faithfulness has been demonstrated time and time again, and just pray that our hearts would be um, just consumed with that love for you and that trust in your faithfulness so that we can live lives that are focused on you, that seek your kingdom first, and that have your glory as our ultimate passion. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.